going to be preaching from Romans 7 this morning. I am here for another five Sundays. So we've got one Sunday in Romans 7, and then we've got four Sundays uh, in Romans 8. So that's where we're going to be heading over the next few weeks. Um, there is a, an outline on the inside of your notice sheet, which might be helpful. If you're one of the juniors and you've got a clipboard, you can do some colouring in on there. But there's also some bits to fill in on the inside of the notice sheet if you would uh, like to. There is a, there's a version of the Christian life that I think goes a little bit like this. So, um, God saves us through Christ for good works that he's prepared for us to do in advance. Okay? Now, that's true so far. But then those good works are lived out in a sort of competition with other Christians. It's a sort of competitive version of the Christian life, where if you're doing well, and perhaps if more accurately you're able to give the impression to others that you're doing very well, then you'll be lauded in church. You might be given an opportunity to lead something. You'll get praised. But if you do badly, and if, you know, God forbid, people see that you're doing badly, then, then people will talk behind your back, and you will get overlooked and sidelined. If you fail at some point in the past, perhaps maybe particularly if you fail in sexual sin or your marriage gets in trouble, well, you will never ever succeed in this competition. Of course, that version of the Christian life, that competition is not a fair one. It's not a right one. It's called legalism. It's an evangelical version of legalism. Salvation by grace, but repaid on a mortgage of good works. And it's the plague of churches down through the centuries, and still today. If you let that run out for a generation, it will empty a place of worship. It will kill a church and lead lots of Christians into bitterness. There is another version of the Christian life, though, and it runs like this. God saves us through Christ, not for good works to be lived out in competition with one another, but God saves us through Christ for freedom. And that freedom is seen in a liberty from rules and traditions and codes of conduct. So it's not so much a, a competition about visible righteousness. Salvation is not being repaid on a mortgage of good works. Instead, salvation in this version of the Christian life is being taken for granted. Used as an excuse for sin. Where the respected are those who don't seem to hold to traditions too tightly who seem to be free from rules. You know, the Christians that we respect, they, they drink more freely, they speak more loosely, they spend their time more liberally, they seem to sleep more easily. And the disrespected are those who, to be honest, just need to loosen up a little bit. The traditionalists, who still think in categories of laws and rules, they need to find freedom, surely. They need to learn just to skip church once in a while and allow themselves to get a bit sweary when things go wrong. Now, of course, that version of the Christian life is wrong too. It's called antinomianism. Anti is in against and nomos is in the law. Against or anti-law. And it too is a plague of churches through the centuries. It is still alive today. And let that run for a generation and that also will empty the church too. Now, I, I start there. There are lots of ways that in Romans 1 to 6 I could show you that both legalism and antinomianism are contradicted by what Paul says in Romans 1 to 6. But I start there this morning because I want to show you that more than anything, 
Legalism and antinomianism, if you think in any of those categories, they just cannot handle these verses that we just read from Romans 7. Because if you look down at the passage and just pull out the words that, that Paul uses to describe the Christian life, then if you're a legalist or an antinomian, you're in big trouble because your assumptions about the Christian life are about to be destroyed. What does Paul say? Well, he's clearly not in a competition for righteousness, is he? Look at verse 14. What does he say? He considers himself to be doing very badly. I am sold under sin, he says. So much so that in verse 15, he doesn't even understand his actions. And he's not an antinomian either. He's not freely doing whatever he likes. In fact, verse 16, he does the opposite of what he wants to do. Verse 18, full of nothing good in his flesh, unable to do the good he wants. So much so that in verse 19, despite his desire to do good, he keeps doing evil instead. In fact, according to verse 21, it's like a law, as, in a, as a principle of life, that when he wants to do the right thing, evil is right there with him. Jumps out and gets him. And all that's happening, verse 22, when again, unlike an antinomian, he delights in the law of God. I love the law of God, he says, in my inner being. So much so that his Christian life in verse 23 feels like a war. A war that's marked by failure or capture, verse 23. And it's so bad that it makes him feel wretched, verse 24. Wretched almost to the point of giving up. It's not that he needs to loosen up. He already feels way too loose by nature. But neither can he compete in a legalistic competition because he's, he's losing on all fronts. Now, before we go any further in the passage. Let me just try and show you some of the flow of what's going on in Romans 7. We're not able to spend more time in Romans 7 than just this one week, and so we're coming to the end of it and skipping the first parts of it. But let me just show you how this fits in with what we've been seeing so far. This flows from chapter 6 as Paul starts telling them that their freedom from the law, they're free from the law as a means of salvation. You are, you are not saved by obeying the law, he says. That freedom comes through the death of Christ. They are dead to the legal hold of the law. They are now bound to another covenant, he says in the beginning of Romans 7. Another husband, as he pictures it. Uh, the covenant of grace in Christ is now theirs. And then following those opening six verses, Paul goes on to talk in verses 7 to 13 about his life before he was a Christian. So, so you'll notice in verse 7, it starts talking in I. He starts using the word I all the time. But he uses... I in the past tense, so he starts saying, I was, I was. And this is Paul before he was a Christian. And he's talking about what did the law do for him before he was a Christian. And he says three things. He says firstly in verse 7 that the law revealed sin. In other words, without the law he wouldn't have known what sin was. Here's the law, this is what God requires of you. Oh, I now know what it means to be a lawbreaker, he says. Then he says in verse 8 that, it, in a sense, it entices sin. The law entices sin. Arouses sin is the word that he uses in verse 5. Now, everybody in the room knows what that means. You know the, the sign that's sometimes at the top of the stairs that says you're not allowed to go up through that door at the top of the stairs and play with a glass door? Anyone read that and have a compelling desire to play with the glass door even though it says you're not supposed to, Yeah. I know you do because I see you do it sometimes. It is this thing in us that the law, the rule, entices us to disobedience. We, we love to break rules. And then he says the law condemns him, kills him, hands him over to justice. Which is because, verse 12, the law is righteous and good, but it can't save. Now that brings us to verse 14, and Paul loses the I was, I was, and starts now 
with I am, I am. It's the present tense. So he's describing no longer what it was like to read the law before he was a Christian. He's now talking about what the Christian life is like for him, having been saved by grace and died to the law's condemnation. And while these verses aren't everything that Paul has to say about what the Christian life is like, we've got four weeks in Romans 8, don't forget, looking at assurance, yet still this ongoing battle with sin described here as a genuine part of Paul's Christian experience. Listen, in a word, Paul's Christian life is a war. It's a war. It's a war in the flesh and the mind with the competing desires of the old nature raging against the new spirit-filled life. And I want to say, even before we go any further in the passage this morning, I want to say right now at the beginning, if you know nothing about what Paul is talking about, if you know nothing of this wretched feeling of not being able to live the godly life that you long to live, if you know nothing of that wretched sense of failure or the inability that's described in these verses, then listen, I simply don't think you're a Christian this morning. Or if you are, you're not an honest one. Perhaps you're trapped in a game of righteous top trumps with others and you you don't think you're struggling with sin because actually you think you're doing quite a lot better than everybody else, thank you very much, even though you know that's a lie. Or perhaps you've misunderstood freedom and you aren't in a battle with sin because you're you're not fighting it at all, you're just giving up. But the truth is that Christian maturity comes with an honesty of the battle with sin, an openness about the struggle, a greater awareness that for all our efforts, we will never, this side of Christ's return, this side of glory, be who we want to be. If you're a Christian this morning, have you reckoned with the fact that 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 battle with lust that you have, That battle with pride or with a loose tongue or with an insecure competitiveness, that battle might last you 50 years, not just five. I was talking a few weeks ago to a a guy called Ryan who used to be a a professional trombonist. He he started playing as a child and uh, won lots of competitions. He rattled his way through the grades and then he studied at the Royal College of Music in London and got a degree in playing the trombone. He was uh, playing in various orchestras and uh, he was playing professionally, making money from playing the trombone, but he stopped. Why did you stop, Ryan? I asked him, what was, what was going on? What would make you stop? You'd trained for so long to do this. And he said, I realized I'd never be good enough. I'd never be good enough, he said. You see, something happens when you study the trombone is that you get to listen to the people who are the best in the world at the trombone. And when you start to play professionally and your your ear is trained to hear what it sounds like when somebody, the world's best player, plays, you realize that I'm never going to be like that. I've studied all my life and I'm never going to be that good. It can lead to a sort of epiphany of despair, can't it? I'll never make it. Now, In a way, and in a right sense, that's Paul's experience of the Christian life. You know, if if you're sitting there this morning thinking, I'm a godly person, I can only assume you haven't really studied Jesus. Because the more you get to know Christ, the more you study him, the more you mature as a Christian, the older you get as a person and you mature as a person, you realize, don't you, that it doesn't matter how much progress I make, I will never make that. I've got such a long way to go and so little time to do it. I'll never be like him, not in this life. 
So much so that the life of the mature Christian is marked as much by war as it is by peace, as much by struggle as it is by rest, as much by a growing sense of the pervasiveness of our sin as it is by a sense of victory over it. Now, with all that in mind, let me briefly show you the enemy in the war, the battleground of the war, and the victor in the war, okay? Enemy, battleground, victor. Enemy, battleground, victor. Okay, the enemy. Ongoing sin. Nick did a great job of reading the passage, Nick. This is a nightmare to read because of the I do do not what I want to do things, yeah? All that kind of stuff, and it gets quite confusing. But in some ways, that sort of cadence of the passage of the words, if you like, this I do what I do not want to do, what I do not want to do, that is what I do, that sort of underlines the mysteriousness of the passage, doesn't it? This mysterious frustration that Paul feels with the Christian life and experience, saying in verse 15, I don't even understand what I'm doing anymore. In one sense, it's not him doing the actions, is it? But sin living in him that does the actions in verse 17. It's a sentence he repeats in verse 20. Now, Paul is not saying there that he's no longer responsible for what he's doing. He's not saying that to absolve himself of any responsibility. He's not saying, oh, I know I did those things wrong, but it, it was sin, it wasn't really me. No, he's, he's not saying that. If that was the case, he wouldn't feel bad about it. He wouldn't be in a battle, would he? He wouldn't be in a war at all. He would have just gone off and carried on. No, the sin belongs to Paul. He is responsible for it. That The flesh is still me, he says in verse 18. Rather, the point is that, that sin in the life of the Christian is in one sense, and I know this is a kind of big word, but it's an incongruous experience. It, it doesn't really fit. It doesn't really match. It comes from the old flesh, flesh which in the gospel is dead in Christ, but we find in this life is still living with us, leading us astray even when we're on the cusp of doing what is right, giving to us orders which in the moment of receiving them feel irresistible. And we know what that feels like, don't we? Now, as Paul describes his experience, he does so in shocking ways. Having, if you've been here before, you know, having seen in chapter 6 that we are free from sin's reign, he still says, verse 14, that life now is like being sold under sin. Sin is still in his body and he's not yet rid of it. Yet he knows there's nothing good in his flesh, verse 18, so that even while he wants to do what is right, he is unable to do it. I hope that you are, as you read this and you think about who's writing this, I hope you are shocked by what you read. I can imagine any number of us in a conversation with Paul over coffee at the back, uh, at the end of the service, the Apostle Paul, that is, not any other Paul in this room. And, you, you know, Paul says to you, oh, I've just had a terrible week. I had a terrible time this week. You know, I've just not been able to shake that, that sinful lust that I've just been struggling with for, for ages. It's right there. I, I don't want it to be, but it's right there. It's in my thoughts all the time. I, I can't. I can't deal with it. It's like I'm sold under sin, he says. What would you, what would you say? I, oh, put your arm around him, perhaps. Listen, Paul, don't be so hard on yourself, Paul. You're an apostle, for goodness sake. You've had direct encounters with the risen Jesus. Listen, I can guarantee, Paul, you're a better Christian than anybody else in this room. You know, Gordon over there got drunk last week. Vicky has a copy of Fifty Shades of Grey on her Kindle and no one knows. You're better than her. Now, we'd say those kind of things and we think, what a good job of pastoral care I'm doing. How encouraging I'm being to the Apostle Paul. But we'd be doing an atrocious job, wouldn't we? Because actually it's Paul's honesty about the battle with sin that is a sign of his maturity, not his immaturity. 
You know, the fact that the Apostle Paul can write to the Roman church and say, listen, the good I want to do, I don't do. And the fact that he can write that, and you and I struggle to say sorry to our family when we lose our temper about something stupid, is a sign of Paul's maturity and our immaturity. Sin is still in our flesh. And though, yes, we grow as a Christian, and yes, we make progress, still there is a law or a principle in our lives, verse 21, this side of glory, this side of meeting the Lord Jesus, that when we want to do good, evil will be right there with us. So that even now, even in the, the sacred moment of preaching God's word, I can be more concerned about what you're thinking of me than I am about what I'm even doing. And as you sit there listening, you can be more concerned with whatever else it is that you're really thinking about than you are with what God is saying in this room right now. The good we want to do, we don't do. Evil is right there with us. We might be justified, we might have died to sin, we might be free from the penalty of sin, we might be liberated from having to sin, but in the wisdom of God, this side of glory, I don't shake it. So that you and I will always be singing, won't we? Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. So that's who the enemy is, ongoing sin. Let's have a look at the battleground. Me, me. Look down at verses 22 to 24 for a moment. Let me read them to you again. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members another law, another principle, waging war against the law of my mind, making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Now, this is one of the reasons that you know that Paul is talking about his experience as a Christian here. Not only does it make sense of the tenses that he uses in the passage, but also because he says, in my inner being, I delight in the law of God. Now, that, that kind of thing, that delighting God's law, is something that only a regenerate Christian can have. That kind of delighting in who God is and what he says from the inner being is not our natural state. You only have to reread chapters 1 to 3 to know that. So then notice all the different ways then that Paul refers to himself. He talks about his inner being. He talks about his members. He talks about the, the law of his mind. He talks about the law of sin that dwells in his members. He talks about being a wretched man with a body of death. You see, the, po the point is that don't, don't think about Paul's body as a sort of location of a battle between two sort of alien forces of sinfulness and Christ. It's not that, is it? Actually, this is a battle for Paul himself. That while it's possible, isn't it? Chapter 8, verse 3, we're told that the perfect Lord Jesus is born in the likeness of sinful flesh. But still, our experience of fleshliness, of human flesh, is being taken over by sinful desires and longings. So that while it's very core, Paul loves God and longs to obey him. Still, there's a battle for who Paul is and what his life is for. It's going on in his mind and his will, and it's played out in his body. It's a battle for him. In other words, this battle with sin that Paul experiences is at the very deepest level of his experience. He cannot do anything without being suspect of his motives. He can't trust his actions or his desires at all. You know, just think back to this, this trombone idea, to Ryan and his trombone for a moment. This idea that the weakness of our flesh is seen as we see the perfection of the Lord Jesus. And, and think with me for a moment about Matthew 14. Matthew 14. You don't have to turn to it. You can turn to it if you want to. 
In Matthew 14, Matthew gives us an account of the feeding of the 5,000. What you need to remember about Matthew 14, and when we're told about the feeding of the 5,000, it comes in the context of the death of John the Baptist. Just before the feeding miracle, Jesus learns of John the Baptist's execution. And Jesus hears of that, and he withdraws, which is kind of just like what you would do, isn't it? Yeah, this is one of Jesus' relatives. I think it's probably the only person at the time who really knew who Jesus was and was his only real ally in this world. And now he'd been killed. And surely for Jesus, learning of the death of John the Baptist was learning that that's what's going to happen to me. That's what's going to happen to me. So he gets in the boat and goes across the lake. I, I need some time alone to grieve. He pulls up on the shore, and what does he find? But the, the crowd has followed him around the lake. Now, just imagine yourself in that situation. The only person in the world who understood you has been killed, brutally murdered. And you know in a, sh- in a few short months, this crowd that are so eager right now to see you, they're going to be shouting for your death. And now they've, they've sailed round because they're just... They're kind of intrigued by you. They want you to heal them. They want you to feed them. They're just after you. And what what would you do? Well, surely you'd just get back in the boat and sail off, wouldn't you? Or even get angry and blast them with a piece of your mind for their fickle self-centeredness. You know, I don't know whether this is you, but when you, you or I get home from work or from school and we find that someone else has eaten the last biscuit, we fly off in a rage, don't we? How dare they tread on my sustenance, my biscuits? How dare they eat them? And here Jesus, full of grief and pain and anguish, with a crowd of people who are going to be baying for his blood in a few months' time, meets them, and what does he do? Matthew tells us he's full of compassion. Can you get your mind around that? Full of compassion. And Paul looks at accounts like that, just like we do this morning, and go, that's not me. That's not me for a moment. That's what Jesus is like. I am not like that. There is such a long way for me to go. There's a battle going on for me. I'm a wretched man. So am I. So are you. Finally then, the victor. The victor, Jesus. I want us to end on verse 25. Take a look at it. I'll read from verse 24. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then, I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. This is Paul's confidence at the end of the chapter, and we're going to spend... Longer in chapter 8 as he spells it out in more detail and talks about Christian assurance and where that comes from. But this is his confidence that Jesus Christ, our Lord, will one day liberate him. There is a day coming, says Paul, when the battle between the law of God that he loves in his mind and the law of sin that he serves in his flesh, that battle will be over and I will be with the Lord. Christ will be victorious. He will liberate me. So at the end of the chapter drives Paul not to despair or disillusionment, but to Jesus himself, knowing ultimately that Jesus Christ will not condemn him, but save him. It's such a good place, isn't it, to end this morning. I I don't know whether you're thinking, I I hope that you're thinking, in part at least, about some of the things that you personally struggle with. If you're a Christian this morning, 
You put your finger on some of those battles with sin that you have. And you wonder, don't you, why has God made it like this? Why would God make the Christian life so difficult? Why not make Christians perfect at the moment of salvation? Well, let me tell you, God only knows why. But what I do know is that the battle with sin in the life of the believer each day, each day that you fight, makes Jesus a little bit more precious than he was the day before, because he alone is the one who will liberate you. You know, each time I stumble and I fall, each time I'm drawn into legalism or antinomianism, this internal battle with sin jolts me to realize that Jesus is my only hope. Whenever I'm tempted to, you know, to parade my godliness in front of others or to ignore my sin, I feel this twinge, this stab in the conscience. You know, I, I love God, but evil keeps creeping up and getting me. I need Jesus. I need Jesus. You know, and wherever I feel defeated, and I, I look around this morning, I think, I'm the worst Christian in this room. I'm a wretched Christian. Then I realize Jesus saves wretched Christians. In fact, there really isn't any other sort of Christian. And Jesus loves to save wretched Christians like us. We're going to sing Robin Robertson's, Robert Robinson's hymn in a moment. Let me just read you some of the words as we close. Jesus sought me when a stranger, wandering from the fold of God. He, to rescue me from danger, interposed his precious blood. How his kindness yet pursues me, mortal tongue can never tell. Clothed in flesh till death shall loose me, I cannot proclaim it well. Oh, to grace how great a debtor. Daily I'm constrained to be. Let thy goodness, like a fetter, bind my wandering heart to thee. Prone to wander. Oh, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Here's my heart, Lord. Take and seal it. Seal it for thy courts above. Oh, that day, when free from sinning, I shall see thy lovely face full arrayed in blood-washed linen, how I'll sing thy sovereign grace. Come, my Lord, no longer tarry, bring thy promises to pass, for I know thy power will keep me till I'm home with thee at last. Let's have a few moments of quiet, and then I'll close in prayer. Heavenly Father, we often do that really silly thing that Christians are really good at doing, which is pretending that we're better than we really are. And so, Lord, we want to pray that you would forgive us and that you would give us both an honesty of the fierceness of the battle, but also we pray a greater sense of assurance of the victory that will be ours in the Lord Jesus when we see him. Lord, we pray that you might help us where we're weary in the fight, where we feel our sense of failure, where perhaps even we have considered it not even worth carrying on. Lord, have mercy on us, we pray. 
and help us in this life as we live battling with sin. Help us in that moment to find this vision of the Lord Jesus even more beautiful and glorious, knowing that he alone is our saviour and our hope. And we pray in his name. Amen.